0: Today's show is sponsored by Spoonflower. If you feel uninspired when shopping for fabric, wallpaper, and gift wrap at big box chain stores, then you need to check out Spoonflower. When you shop from thousands of designs in the Spoonflower marketplace, you'll be supporting a talented and devoted artist community, all while maintaining a slim, eco footprint via Spoonflower's digital on-demand printing process. While She Naps podcast listeners can get 15% off your next Spoonflower order with the code ABBY15. That's A-B-B-Y-1-5. Learn more at com slash Abby. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show, Spoonflower. Welcome to episode 53 of the Walshing Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today I'm in downtown Boston visiting Gray's Fabrics with my guest, Jenny Rushmore. Jenny has a little office at the back of Gray's, and it's the perfect place to record a show about how to launch a sewing pattern business. If you don't know Jenny, she's a body positive sewing blogger, and she recently also became a sewing pattern designer. When she launched her company, Kashmirat Patterns, which creates curve-friendly patterns in sizes 12 to 28 and cup sizes C through H, how long ago did Kashmirat Patterns launch?
1: So it took me about a year from deciding that that's what I was going to do to the day of launch, uh, which amazed me actually, because at the very beginning, my goal was it's going to be a year and it ended up being like almost a year to the day, which was great, kind of coincidental. Um, But basically, you know, I've known for a long time that there was this gap in the market. Um, You know, I'm a plus size. I'm kind of in the middle of that, you know, like I'm a little bit bigger than the straight size. I'm on the small end of plus size. But even at that, I really struggled finding sewing patterns that fit me without alterations. And even if they theoretically were my size, my bust didn't fit any of them at all. And that's because, you know, most sewing patterns are either made for a B cup, or if you're really lucky, a C cup. And occasionally there are cup-sized ones up to a D. But for me, I'm in an H. So I'm like, you know, a whole step ahead of that. And I was just getting really frustrated with constantly having to adjust every single pattern that I used. Um, But for a long time, I just didn't think I could do anything about that. Um, In the meantime, I helped set up the Curvy Sewing Collective, and I saw more and more that people were saying exactly the same thing. Like, I wish I could just make something straightforwardly. So really, it was about a year ago, so it was October 2014, when it suddenly occurred to me that maybe I could be the one to do that.
0: Yeah, it's funny how... Sometimes you see something and you're like, somebody should really do something about this. And then you keep saying that and saying it to other people. And then one day you're like, actually, that person's going to just be me. Who's going to do it? It's yeah.
1: t- totally <laughs> right. They say, be the change you want right. to see in the world. And, and I think for me, like, I had the, the thought in my mind that someone should do it. I mean, for literally years. But my, the thing that always held me back was, well, I don't know how to draft patterns. And even if I go into a class now, there's still not going to be good patterns, are they? They're like, I, I'll just be like a beginner. And the thing that really turned turned me is I heard someone say, like, if you wanted to set up a restaurant, you wouldn't assume you were the chef. Right. Right? Like running a restaurant business isn't about being good at cooking. It's about knowing how you find someone who's good at cooking and sending direction for them. But that's not what it's really about. So I had this kind of like sort of half light bulb moment, like the dimmer switch went up 50%. Like, oh I, I guess I I mean I guess I could do it. But then right. I had this another, you know, thing where it's like But I don't know anyone who does. And then it was like I had the literal like dimmer goes up to 100%. One night, I actually remember it so vividly, I was brushing my teeth. And I suddenly thought, actually, I do know a pattern drafter. Like, I know one personally. And I hadn't really thought about that. So I brushed my teeth. And it was probably midnight. And I'm lying in bed. And I email her on my iPhone. And I'm like, this is a crazy idea. But if I were to try and do plus size patterns and to try and do them in big cup sizes, is that something you'd even be interested in? Cause I had no idea how the system worked. And she got back to me about 15 minutes later and said, let's go for it. Wow, Love it. Right. And then that's basically when it was like, okay, this is actually going to happen.
0: Right. And I think when I first started designing patterns myself, I definitely thought I had to do everything on my own. Mm-hmm. Like I would look, I would go to the, you know, fabric store and I would look at these patterns and I would think this person did this whole entire thing, like designed the cover, took the photo, Drafted the pattern, designed the pattern, every aspect of this, this person mastered. And that's why she gets to do this. And because I don't know how to do half or more of those steps, I can't get in. And then over time, I've realized that isn't true at all. I mean, it might be true for one person, but it's definitely not true for everyone. And so it was the moment you realized that you could get help was when you realize
1: this could be absolutely times. and drafting is a, a huge huge element of whether a sewing pattern is going to be successful or not but it's far from the only one and I think what I realized is I know my target audience like as deeply as it's possible to know them because I am them and I have lived in this world for years with no intention of setting up a company just I'm just immersed in this area um and so I actually have a sense of like what people wear what looked good on um, figures like mine? What are the adjustments we usually have to do? Um, and, and there were lots of very specific things that have gone into my patterns that meet those needs, some of which I've talked about, some of which actually I haven't, but people are discovering them themselves. Um, and my drafter actually doesn't know a lot of that. You know, that was new to her. I, I was explaining the stuff and, and working with her on how to make these alterations. But ultimately, drafting, you know, if you get someone who just knows what a great armhole is... That's a huge difference between your pattern being really successful and not being so successful. So it was like the coming together of those two things. Like I had a lot of like the insight into what people are looking for and what they want, um, together with other elements of my background. And she really has the technical expertise to like turn it into something.
0: Right. And when you work with a drafter, that's like contract work, right? In yeah. other words, you say, I'd like this done, she does it, and then she bills you Absolutely. kind of thing. And so there's not like a cut of royalties or something like that. Just to be clear to people, like, you know, you as you would pay a photographer or a graphic designer to design your logo, like she does the work and then you pay her.
1: There are different models. So for mine, yes, I contract pay her. Um, initially it was like, oh, that's so much money, but actually if you get someone who is an industrial patent maker, which is mine, she's capable of doing dozens a week, you know, of patents. So she can churn through them like nobody's business. Um, there are some people who are paid royalties. Um, And there are also people who are, like, involved in the patent company so much that, you know, they are effectively a co-founder. But for me, it's simply contract work paid by the hour.
0: And how do you recommend people find someone like that? One of the things I think is so hard is that there isn't a a directory. Like, how do you – if you search online, you know, you're not going to find somebody. And even if you do – find someone. It's so hard to find someone locally where you can actually go visit them. I mean, is your person local? They're not. No, my
1: person's um, thousands of miles away. Wow. Okay. So that was a challenge. Right. Um, Although it works. So, uh, you know, my mine effectively came through like friendship networks um, from being in the sewing blogging community. There are definitely a few people who I know design for multiple um, indie patent companies mm-hmm. um, because not everyone's designing their own. I think there is actually like an implication in a lot of sewing patent companies that the person running it designs the patents, but in a lot of cases or drafts them. In a lot of cases, it isn't necessarily the case. Um, but it's definitely difficult. One thing, you know, you can ask people, but not everyone's willing to Telling be you. open about that information. So yes, I think, you know, for me, that was one of the biggest challenges actually of this whole thing was trying to find out who does what um, and how to get the resources. Just Just the other day, I finally found out another printer who apparently is one of the major printers in America of what I do. And I had no idea until now, like 13 months in and I've already printed a lot of things. I just discovered that apparently there's one printer above all the others that I didn't even know about. And I think this is pretty common. Uh huh. It's and- almost like we need a maker's row. I don't know if you're familiar with that website, but they're basically for people who want to do ready to wear clothing. There's now this website called maker's row that will basically tell you here are pattern cutters, here are factories. I haven't used it myself. At one point I was toying with the idea of ready-to-wear. Um, but it's all there. And it would be amazing if the same thing existed for sewing pants. Right. Maybe the, maybe the market isn't big enough. I'm not sure. Right,
0: saying. right, right. So let's talk about printing for a little bit. So the um, tissue that patterns are printed on is printed, it seems
1: universally, by McCall's. Is that right? Is that what you found? So mine are printed at McCall's, yes. And um, actually, it was kind of funny because when I initially approached them and they sent me samples, they sent me samples of other indie patterns so I could see who were printed at McCall's, which was quite funny. But there are others. Um, I understand that Simplicity um, also prints for some people. And also Palmer printing also prints for some people, although I don't know if they do the garment tissue paper printing or not but yeah I use McCall's um and that was actually um I constantly chat with other sewing uh pattern company people um my kind of two closest friends I talk every single day with Heather Liu of Closet Case Files we commiserate and collaborate on things every single day and also Jen Beeman at Grayla- Grainline we chat all the time and Jen actually put me on to McCall's um, and said, okay, here's the person, contact them. And actually, it's an extremely easy process with them. They are fully set up to do contract manufacturing for small businesses. They do have a minimum run order, although it's 1,000, not 10,000, which a lot of people, for some reason, a lot of people have said it's 10,000. It isn't. Thank goodness. <laughs> have a problem then. No, it's 1,000. Um, and they're pretty flexible, and the prices are actually quite low um, compared to what you'd expect. So let's talk a little bit about these the relationships that you have, because I think
0: um, uh, you and I recently were looking at a survey that um, a woman sent out, um, somebody who neither of us know at all. Yeah. Um, She doesn't blog, and she's not really a participant in the sewing blog community in any way, as far as we could tell. Yeah. Just from, like, some quick research. Um, but she asked in her survey, it was a Google form that she had made asking for basically all of the contact information for everybody that you've worked with to create your company, you know the printer, the drafter, and all information that you And she just wanted you to sort of fill it out and send it to her so she could start essentially a competitive company. Um, And it was a little appalling. I mean, I understand where she's coming from. She wants the information, so did you. Um, So what's the difference between sort of how you approached going from basically, I know nothing about this, to now a year later, I have a company,
1: um, to the way that she approached it? It's a funny one because I did feel very torn as we were discussing when I received that because people helped me out a lot. I think there's a couple of really big differences. The one is I only asked people for help who I already knew or had some relationship with. Now, this is the world of sewing blogging. So a relationship might mean I'm friends with them on Instagram. But frankly, if you comment on each other's Instagram constantly, you you genuinely do feel like you know someone. You see that every day and then you start to comment on their Facebook and then they comment on your blog. So those people like I wasn't coming out of the blue I was also extremely tentative at the beginning and I assumed they wouldn't tell me so I think the very first thing I ever did outreach on was where do you get paper patterns printed not the envelope but like the inside paper pattern and I emailed like four people three of them all got back to me and told me exactly the same thing and the fourth person said sorry that's like my trade secret which is fine although I know that they print at the same place um, but it was very tentative and it was like, I understand if this isn't something you can share. I just thought I would ask. And it was one question. It was one question. Now hmm? that did escalate into other questions over time, right. but I think the thing is, if you have relationships, like on the lo- the sewing world is incredibly collaborative. And I come from a very corporate background where the most bizarre thing would be to call up your competitor and say, what's your sources? That's just would blow my mind. But in sewing patterns, like, people do share a lot more. But I think that there are also hard lines. Like, you can't ask someone how many they sell. You can't ask them about revenue. You can't ask them about how their sales split up. And I have never even deigned to imply to ask those questions. So I think, I think there's sort of a sensitivity about it. And there are some things which, to all, it's all intents and purposes, are common knowledge. The fact that McCall's prints paper patterns, that is not a trade secret. Like... That is very, very open and, and able to be shared. So I'm also happy. And I have actually already I mean, it's hilarious because like I've hardly have any experience at this point. But I've had several people approach me already and said, you know, could I have a Skype with you for half an hour and more chat? I'm more than happy to do that and I'm happy to share it. But you need to you need to show the willing of having a relationship and a discussion and not just like, here's a form, fill it out and send me back with phone numbers, please. Right. That's very different. Yeah,
0: agreed. So we you touched on your background a little bit and your corporate experience. So I wanna kind of backtrack a little bit because I think in order to understand how you made all of this happen, how you made cashmere patterns happen. We need to sort of think about your career and your career shift, um, because you do have some relevant personal experience to bear. So let's start with college and just sort of trace briefly your career path from the time that, that sort of led up to you quitting your corporate job and, and starting
1: kind of going out on your own. Sure. So, um, I did medieval history at university, <laughs> which isn't so uncommon in the UK, actually, because if you want to go into business, very few people do business degrees. Like it's very common to do English or math or physics or something and go into business. So I didn't really worry about it. I just did a subject I thought was vaguely interesting. So I did a three-year undergraduate and that was it. And during my time there, um, I got a job with Procter & Gamble. So I never intended to go into like corporate business I always wanted to do something creative. I almost went to art college, actually. But it was one of those situations where if you get certain grades, like you're discouraged from going to art college and you're meant to do something more with your life. It's funny that I've kind of come round back to that in some ways. But I decided to go to Procter & Gamble because they did marketing and I kind of thought advertising might be interesting. That might be a combination of arts and like businessy stuff. And also they offered to move me to Switzerland straight away. So I was 20 years old. I had a contract to move to Switzerland. They compensate you for being an expatriate. Like, you live a very nice life. And I thought, well, I'll do that. And and then in a year or two, I'll move into advertising. Or I'll go and work in television, which was my other big thing that I wanted to do. Or I'll go and work for the Red Cross or something. I'll do something artistic or meaningful, and then that will be that. So 11 years later, (laughs) (laughs) I was still working there. And basically, I worked in marketing and brand management at P&G. And I enjoyed it for the most part. I had ups and downs. I think everybody does. What really kept me in is they give you a lot of responsibility. It's very meritocratic. Um, And I was very young starting in the workforce. I was only 20. And I really appreciated that. Um, I was on an equal footing with 30-year-olds with MBAs. And I thought that was great because if I did the same work, like, why not? And also, they kept on moving me around the world. And I'd always wanted to um, be an expat in my adult life. I'd been an expat as a child because my parents were. So when they said to me, do you want to move to Switzerland? I'm like, sure. And then every time I was about to leave, they'd move me to another country and I'd be like, great. So I was in Switzerland for about four years. Then I was in Greece for two years. And then I moved to Boston when P&G bought Gillette. Um, And all that time, I was mostly working on brand management. So I was doing new product development, packaging, pricing, advertising, consumer insight work, consumer research, it's very broad at PNG. Marketing doesn't just mean like making an ad, it's everything from the beginning to the end. And it's really like a great basic founding in like business management and marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a few years in the, uh, towards the end of my PG career, I actually was about to leave because I wanted to go and do something in nonprofits. And instead, I had the opportunity when I was there to move into sustainability. So basically that was about coming up with like environmental and social responsibility programs for our products. And it was very new. And I actually got put in charge of the department. So um, I did that. They put me through grad school, which was very nice, and I did that for a few years. Um, and then I've only ever had two jobs. So after a few years of doing that, um, I then got my green card so I could leave PNG. And I moved and I worked actually for TripAdvisor for a few years. And I set up a a green hotel program there. So I was doing a corporate sustainability role again, um, but within the marketing department. So that was really my background. In terms of leaving, you know, I started working on cashmere patterns six months before I left my job. And I actually didn't intend to leave it. So, or rather, I thought I would do this maybe for a year or two before I would leave my job. But the stars basically just aligned. It was like every single thing became like, you should leave and do this full time. Um, So I had the opportunity to do it with a payout and things had come to a natural end there. And at the same time, you know, I had got a lot done. And we were at the point where we were like, okay, it starts time to like roll our sleeves up and get on with things. So it was kind of a natural segue. And how far
0: into... Your time at TripAdvisor. When did you start
1: the blog, the Cashmere blog? I started the blog when I was still at PNG, so oh, okay. I started my blog uh, coming up for six years ago now. So okay. I've been doing that for a long time. So I think
0: that's kind of an important
1: point because um, it wasn't as though six months
0: before you know you ended up leaving TripAdvisor, you you know decided to start a pattern company and started from scratch. Like you had a lot of foundation built when it comes to relationships with other bloggers when it, and designers when it comes to an audience that you'd built and other projects you'd done online related to yeah. what you were getting ready to launch. So, um, you know, talk a little bit about sort of the importance in your mind of having that foundation established mm-hmm. online before getting ready to go ahead and order thousands of copies yeah. of multiple patterns and invest a whole lot of time and money into doing that.
1: Yeah. What's well, interesting they were kind of like Like two ways of thinking about that. The one is when I started, I had this kind of attitude at the very beginning of like, I don't know how to do this. Like, I have no idea. What do I do? And I realized fairly quickly that actually I had done many of the things you have to do in a patent company already. I had not drafted patterns, no, or designed clothes, although I kind of had for myself. But I've done like marketing and product development and product launches and distribution and e-commerce and a bunch of these things. So actually I wasn't starting from zero on that front. And then in terms of having built the audience up already, it's kind of funny. I have had a few people, I think it's kind of cynical, but who are like, this was always your plan. It's like I am not a patient person. If my plan five years ago would be to launch this, I would have not made it five years before launch.
0: But it. I can see why um, they would draw that conclusion. Oh because yeah, if you didn't know you, you would look from the outside and be like, "Wow, all points led here." But yeah. that's not how the plan. No,
1: was. no, totally naive. No, um, I mean, first of all, when I started, I thought anyone who could like make a T-shirt was like a genius. So <laughs> it, was, it was a long, it was a long process. No, so. It's funny, you know, the fact that I already know my target group because I am the target group so well, and the fact that I already um I already have this audience has been like, you know, crucial in in how well it's gone so far. It's actually funny because I was chatting with my accountant before I launched, he was like, you know, obviously like it'll take quite a long time before you have any revenue and I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't want to be over optimistic, but you might be surprised. Like I was extremely nervous because I had no idea if I would sell one or a thousand on day one, but I, said, I don't know. And I went in, you know, a few weeks in and he was just like, Whoa. How how is this possible? How did you, how did you do this on day one? I was like, well, because tens of thousands of people came to my site on that day, you know, and the reason they did is because they already know me. Right. Um, which is, which is huge. And It's sort of funny. I know that companies, someone was telling me the other day that companies like HubSpot Mm -hmm. are really now into this whole like content marketing. And they're basically telling brands who don't have a face and are just a brand, like you need to write lots of content and blog and everything, which is fine. I think it's a little cynical maybe. And it's a little backwards. But for me, it's like, I'm the organic version of that. It's like, I'd already been building up. And even for something like SEO, it's like, even before I launched, if you type in plus size sewing, like you'll actually find me fairly early on, um, because I've been talking about it for a really long time. So I can't really take any credit for that. I mean, it's not, you know, people also ask me like, what are you going to call it? It's like, why would I call it anything other than the name of my blog? Right. If my blog was called Jenny's blog, yeah, I would have changed it, but I already had a name which works fine. Like it's unique. It's great for SEO. Um, and it had been established for a long time, so for me, that that kind of side of things was a bit of a no-brainer. It is funny when I read entrepreneur books or I go to events and stuff, and they talk to me. You know, they they go they talk a lot about knowing your audience, and mm-hmm. I'm a huge, huge proponent of that. P&G's entire marketing know-how is based on the idea that consumer is boss. So if you understand your consumer and you understand their unmet needs, and then how you'll meet it, and then how you'll tell them you do it, that you'll be successful. And I'm a huge believer in that. But yeah, it kind of came prepackaged to me. Um, the same thing with like, what does your brand stand for? And what's your brand personality? Well, I mean, it's me, right? Like <laughs> it's based on my blog and people already know what I'm like. So it wasn't a case of like, how do I concoct a personality for my brand? It was like, I already have a brand name. I already have a brand personality. I already have people who follow me. I already know a lot of them personally and deeply through my blog and the Curvy Sewing Collective. So that was kind of my jumping off point, which is obviously extremely different than the average business person. Yeah,
0: it is different from the average business person, but it's not different from the average sewing enthusiast. And I think, um, I think it's important to sort of encourage people to, if, you know, if you, if you sort of want to break into this in some way, just start, start a site, start a blog, start an Instagram, start wherever, yeah. wherever you, you're happiest online and do it as though it's your job, even if you have another yeah. job. In other words, pursue it with you know, some rigor and passion and just do it and do it all the time Mm -hmm. and every day and sort of be involved in it. Even if you're working elsewhere, even if you have a full-time job doing something else, because it builds the foundation for your actual dream to come true at a later time. And so if you sort of wait and don't do it, you don't have anything. Yeah.
1: I think there's something to be said about authenticity in it as well. I think that people in the sewing world realize very, very quickly between people who are being authentic and it's them Mm -hmm. and it's their personality, kind of warts and all, like they probably don't always show you fully made up or you show yourself goofing around or whatever. And then there are other people where you can tell that they're trying to sell something. And so then they're doing a lot of thinking about, oh, what are the highest SEO terms or what should I do here? And I, I think the sewing world picks up on that extremely quickly so my feeling again is like if you if you really want to be involved in this world like you kind of have to want to be involved in it like don't just think like okay i think i can make some money from this what should i do i don't know if that's gonna work honestly i think you have to like genuinely be passionate and engage with the community because people can sniff out inauthentic and it's also a ton of work
0: it is. And so it's going to be difficult to motivate you, for you to feel motivated to continue. If, I mean, it might last six months, but it's going to take a lot longer and a lot more effort. And if you don't really like doing it, yeah. you know, it's not going to keep It's true. You're not going to be able to keep it. Today's episode is sponsored by Spoonflower. I spoke to Stephen Frazier, the co-founder of Spoonflower, and he told me a little bit about what he feels is important about Spoonflower's mission. You know, why have people uh, generate the designs themselves? I mean, why why have that be part of it and, and have them also be able to profit from it? I mean, everybody who sells a yard... Makes is a ten percent, I think, of of the, the cost. Yeah. Um, so so there's there's kind of a co entrepreneurial uh, thing going on here as well.
2: Yeah, I th- you know, I think that that really is a crucial uh, part of the, the vision for Spoonflower. You know, that marketplace is what makes Spoonflower more than just you know a printing service. And uh, you know what, I I sometimes describe Spoonflower as like YouTube for fabric. You know that concept is really important. You know, creating a platform where people can create new stuff, put their work out there, and you know uh, the world can come to it and figure out what it wants to to buy. Um, you know that that that's the way it should be. Um, you know, uh, so uh, that you know that in a small way is how spinflower set out to change the world
0: and I've always felt that um, there's for a significant number of people shopping on Etsy and shopping on Spinflower as well is an artistic act in and of itself so it's an expression an artistic expression just to shop because you know that you're shopping from you know artisan design products that you're you know that are sort of very niche and and very um, yeah sort of different from what what's on the mass market.
2: And and that's artistic
0: sure. in and of itself.
2: And you're, and you're buying directly from a designer, too. So in the, in the same way that, you know, when you buy, you get this great sense of satisfaction when you buy at the farmer's market because right. you're actually...
0: Handing you know, your cash over so you pick, to the woman who picked the asparagus. Yeah, yes. it's
2: exactly. And, you know, when you buy a piece of fabric on Spoonflower, you get a thank you note from the person that designed it. Right. And they're like, great, you know, uh, would love to see what you make with it. Right. And, um, you know, that kind of connection uh, you know, is just not possible in the sort of old retail world.
0: Thank you so much for your sponsorship of today's episode, Spoonflower. And now back to my conversation with Jenny Rushmore.
1: It is interesting, this whole, it's a ton of work thing. I, I had a conversation with Jen at one point where someone, she was saying, oh my goodness, you know, I, I'm working so hard. It's so hard. And someone was like, but it's never work when it's your passion. And and to some extent, right, that is really wrong. It's like, no, it's still hard work. And also you kind of devalue what someone's doing. If you kind of imply like, oh, it's just your hobby and I'm, I throw a few dollars at you. It's like, no, you know, it's a real business. But the flip side of that is if I felt that posting to Instagram was only for my business, I think I would hate doing it. I think I would resent it and find it hard. But to me, things like reading sewing blogs, being on Instagram, writing my own blog that actually doesn't feel like work. Like, I know it contributes to my business, but I enjoy doing it. And that's why I do it. And that's exactly the kind of thing where I think if you don't, it starts to come across, actually. Mm-hmm. And people realize that that isn't coming from, like, a true place of, like, someone who's really joyous about this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, all right. So let's get down a little bit to the nitty-gritty um, so, when you decided to sell something, you had this blog for a long time. It wasn't really monetized. Did you have ads? No. no okay. No. So, you were just blogging. You had the Kirby Sewing Collective. That's not really no. a, something you're monetizing either. So, so you didn't have a product for a long time. And then you're like, I'm going to have a product soon. So, um, so you're going to need a corporation of some sort. I'm guessing. I mean, some sort of structure. So, what did you decide to do and, and how far along in the process did you,
1: Incorporate. Yeah. So this was all a total like, mystery to me to begin with, because not only have I not been an entrepreneur before, but I'm in America where things are a little bit different. So my parents and my brother are entrepreneurs. I come from a very entrepreneurial family, but the things they could tell me weren't actually, <laughs> in many cases, very relevant because things are done differently there. So, basically, I I started chatting with my accountant um, a few months in. You know, just like, hey, I'm going to be doing this. I don't know anything about finance. And he's the accountant who does your personal Well, I've actually changed with him now. But he was, yes. Doing just like your life. Exactly, yeah. He was just doing my tax return.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And he said to me, okay, well, you probably want an LLC, so have a look at it. So, I I did a bit of research. I'm like, I can do it on LegalZoom. So, I mentioned this to him, like, I'll do an LLC on LegalZoom. And he was like please don't. He's like, if they do it wrong, or something's up with it, or it isn't exactly how it's meant to be, that will haunt you so badly later on down the line. And, you know, I I do come from a very formalized, big, massive company corporate background. So my tendency is to want to always like, play by the rules and like, do things right first time. And it's actually a bit hard for me, because often as an entrepreneur, that isn't what you should do. (laughs) But it's my gut. Yes. Um, And I was like, Okay. So I got, a, it was a lawyer friend of a lawyer friend of someone I worked with um, said, okay, I'll handle this for you. I'll do your LLC. So we set up in that way. Um, I cannot pretend to know the the intricacies of why an LLC made so much more sense than an Lcor or incorpor, you know, incorporation. But when I looked at what other people were doing, they were doing LLCs too. And it seems to make sense for now. Who knows? Maybe one day I'll change it. But that's the kind of thing where I feel like I, I know enough not to be dangerous, but that's about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's. Um, I think that that's a good
1: point, though, to to hire a lawyer and get some real help. And yeah, money, I mean, you. it's been so helpful to yeah. have someone. The only thing is, it's expensive. It is, expensive. And, it, and it's hard because you. you, you I struggle because you that. don't have any money at that point. Like at
0: that point, nothing's coming in. You're no, just money's going out. Um, uh, and seemingly just something that you don't, you can't hold on to. I, I mean, know. it's like, wow, I got a piece of paper saying that now I'm corporation. What was the point of that thousand yeah. dollars, you know?
1: But I decided early on that I was going to plan for success. You know, I, I know that there are different ways of setting up companies. And I read this book called The E-Myth, which is, like, excellent book. It's very famous. It's a little old-fashioned, but it's really, really, really good. And effectively what they say is you need to structure yourself at the very beginning to allow for growth and to allow yourself to be big in the future. Now, who knows? Maybe I won't be. Maybe this is going to last for a year, and I give it up, and I go back to a sustainability job. But I, I, because I guess I've worked in really big organizations and I understand the processes – I was like, okay, I want to be ready for growth and to be able to do that. So early on, I was like, okay, I'm not going to scrimp on the absolute foundations. You know, I'm willing to like, and I'll use friends where I can. Like all my trademarking was done by a trademark lawyer friend of mine. Very nice. I haven't paid him. But I'll make him something nice. But um, but other things I I have paid for. And, you know, for instance, I decided to have the proper accounting software like, As soon as I started having any kind of significant cash flows, I'm like, I don't want in three years time to be going through a shoebox of what I did at the beginning, trying to remember what earth it had been. So I decided to do that. Of course, my bookkeeping woes are for another day, but but I I decided to do that. It is difficult. And I also, I know that not everyone starting small businesses does this. Some people are just like, I'm going to work on the bare minimum I can. That's legally acceptable until the point at which I can't anymore. But I decided to go a different route. Yeah, and I think in some ways you're allowed to go
0: – you allowed yourself to go on a different route because um, you had already sort of floated the balloon. Like you already knew that there was a market for what you were going to offer. You already knew that there were people who were going to buy it, that there was demand for it. And so because you had had at the blog for so long and knew all of the, mm-hmm. the community for a yeah. long time, I think um, if you're coming up with a brand-new product idea out of the blue – And you really don't know if it's going to to go anywhere. It it can be better to go real lean and sort of not spend any of that money yet until you've put that product out there and seen how the the world reacts to it. But you weren't quite in that spot.
1: I mean, I'll be honest. I was like sick with worry when I launched because... I was literally like, my fingers went cold. I did not know this, but apparently when I'm really stressed, my fingers go cold, I've now discovered. And I barely ate. Maybe that's why my fingers were cold. <laughs> anyway, for like the few days, because it, it was... It, a bit of me was trying to be filled with dreams, right? Build it and they will come. But I was like, I don't know. People, people my friends would ask me all the time, how many are you going to sell? How much money is this going to make? I'm like... I have no idea. I, I, I just don't know. I don't know one. I don't know a million. I don't know a hundred million. Like, I have no idea. There are There are like... Boundaries that I guess. I mean, I look at other people who run sewing pattern companies, and I don't see them on yachts. So I'm going to guess, right. but but I'm not sure. So you know, it was really nervous. But honestly, this is actually one of the biggest um, daily tensions for me. Is I'm so used to big companies and how things are done in inverted commas properly. And TripAdvisor like like to think of themselves as a startup. They're not. They're like you know a billion dollar company. Like they're really a, an established company. And every single decision I have, I I always go backwards and forwards between should I do the like cheap thing where you don't pay people and you try and get people to do things for free for you or you get your friends in or you do it yourself late at night? Or should I pay someone and have a more professional response? And you just, you know, it's hard. Every single decision that I have to make, I feel like I
0: go between these two things. Yes. And you're making all those decisions on your own as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so there's nobody there to bounce it off of and yeah. And ask. So yeah, that's, that's tricky. Um, all right. So, so how, so not, not knowing how many you were going to sell, having it be completely mysterious, um, but potentially not a million dollars in the first day, um, knowing that that wasn't going to happen, um, (laughs) that was maybe the only boundary, but, um, so, so how did you plan out how, how many to order and sort of, let's talk a little bit about kind of, you know, the, the patterns themselves. How did you pick which one was going to go first? And have you planned out all the other ones, all the other um, actual patterns? The Appleton dress was first, and but there's others that have come out. And a second one's come out, the Washington, and then there's more plans. Um, so did you sort of plan out six or 12? And how, how
1: many did you order of each? And kind of let's talk about the, the logistics of that, the scheduling. So the pipeline was definitely um, a sort of a big decision about what to do. So the first thing we did is develop the knit and the woven blocks. And that took over six months. It's really hard to make a block for like an H cup bust because the area between like the fullness of your bust and your shoulder and your neck is just, it's a crazy angles around here. So we invested a lot of time up front on doing that. And until I'd done that, I would have different ideas about things I was going to launch, but like I hadn't really done any planning. And initially, my idea actually was to launch with three patterns. It became very apparent that wasn't going to happen really quickly. But we actually started working on on three patterns and then ended up actually focusing on two. So the Appleton and the Washington were basically developed at the same time. And in fact, they were tested in the other way. So the Washington was actually tested first. Um, so that went through like more iterations because I had yet to learn a lot of things. <laughs> and then the Appleton came second. I actually went backwards and forwards a lot on whether to do a wrap dress, um, which maybe now seems funny. Cause I think people are like, it's a no brainer that I would do it because I'm, I'm known for wearing wrap dresses. I have a wrap dress section on my website and so on. And to begin with, I was like, well, there are other wrap dress patterns out there, but this is an interesting one that, you know, I discussed with like Jen and Heather all the time is it's like, first of all, there are no unique ideas in clothes. This doesn't exist, right? Whatever you think you've invented, you haven't. Someone's done it before. So you can't hold yourself to, like, something no one's ever done before. Right. And then I realized that the combination of my sizing and my insight into what women want would make a tangibly different product. So in the case Mm -hmm. of the wrap dress, if you have a big chest, it's really hard to not have a gaping neckline. It's just really, really difficult. And if I'm honest, like all my other wrap dresses before did, I would just wear them with a camisole and then I didn't have to worry about it. And then in conversation with my patent drafter, we realized that there were these tricks in drafting that you could do to make it not gape. And, you know, I told my testers up front, like it won't gape. And I think they were all a bit like, yeah, yeah. And then I started getting these like all caps emails going, oh my goodness, it actually doesn't gape. I can't believe it. And I thought, okay, I think we're on something. So... I decided to leave with that one, which I think was a good decision because I think people associate it with me and it's a very, you know, universally liked dress. Now, I mean, so my pattern draft does not live in Boston. Um, So what we actually do is we do it in chunks. I don't want to go too far ahead because I want to be open to learning. So I didn't want to like design 10 patterns because who knows, maybe I would discover or even that there was something wrong with my block. Right. You know, maybe when it actually went out, we'd be like, oh no, like the bust apex is too high or something. And also it costs quite a lot of money to develop a pattern. So you don't, you know, from a cash flow perspective, there's only so much I can invest. Now, I don't have too many problems on that front in that I can do it. I don't have to do them one by one, which I think a lot of people do for like cash reasons. I'm able to do it in chunks. Um, and it's also much more cost efficient actually to do it in a chunk um, with a designer like you just get their time and it ends up being cheaper than doing it one by one which is good um so yeah so that's what I'm doing so right now um we another pattern has already been tested they're not necessarily in order another pattern has been tested that's final the photography is done it's almost ready to launch but it won't launch for a few months and then I have one more in testing and one more ready for testing in January so I have the next three I know what their following two are after that, um, and at this point it is taking into account consumer feedback, and then we'll see where it goes. Um, I, I imagine this is something I'm going to experiment with over time. Right.
0: Okay. And so can I ask how many of the initial orders were, and did you sell out and have like a panic?
1: So you're actually quite restrained by McCall's minimums, um, and I think this is kind of like the open secret, is that because you can only order 1,000... Almost everyone orders a thousand.
0: So you can only order a thousand, or oh, you sorry, can order or more. You have to order more you than have thousand, to order at least and because thousand. people are wary, because hey, a thousand's a
1: lot. Sounds like a lot. Almost everyone starts with a thousand. Exactly, I and and, and I asked around, and I was like, because I had no idea. Sorry, right? Am I going to sell a thousand on day one? Who knows? <laughs> who <literally doesn't> know <laughs> right. Because, you know, Colette does not post, like, we know. Oh, I, right. I sort of wish they would, but I know, that's it would just be amazing me wanting to know. Yeah. But that probably is unrealistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, although I will say this is actually, I say it's unrealistic. I come from corporations where you can buy that data, right? When I worked at TripAdvisor and I worked at P&G, you pay ACL Nielsen, and they tell you, Unilever you sold this much shampoo last week. And so if you were to launch shampoo, you would immediately be able to go and look and say, this is how big the market is. You know, this is how many people sell. And I really struggled with not having that data because I'm a very data driven person. Like I want to know how many people sew, and then how many of those are plus size and And how many pounds do they buy? To me, it seems like that data is so hard to come by. Like it's not available. The Craft and
0: Hobby Association has some surveys they do and quilts, the Inc. does some surveys, but like. The the real survey, that like how large is the home sewing industry's yeah. market? How,
1: where is I've that never state? seen it. I, I know that one or two bloggers have done surveys, but that doesn't make. There's no logic to that. No, and how many people are the other piece
0: of it is how many people are buying indie patterns versus big four patterns? Yeah. I wish we knew what that was and how has it changed? Like, I'd love to see that data from 1980 to today. Let me see it.
1: But I, that doesn't, where is it? Well, and I feel you, you hear anecdotally like, oh, there's a big surge of people learning to sew. And it's like, anecdotally, okay, yes, I see that there's a lot of people like 70 plus who sew and now like 60 plus, let's say. And now there is a big surge of women in their 20s and 30s. Undoubtedly, like, you know, a lot of the small sewing shops will tell you, yes, I have lots and lots of young people. And in the world of like the Great British Sewing Bee and Tilly and Project Runway, like it's definitely encouraged people. However, how many and are they still continuing to grow? And also what's happening to these people is they're no longer beginners. I have absolutely no idea. And how much do they spend on average? And And where
0: are they going for their
1: information and for their supplies, materials, patterns? It's not available. It's not available. And it needs to be. Yeah. I hope somebody gets on that. I hope (laughs) so too. But yeah, so with McCall's, I I order the minimums because that's what you do. Um, And you order the minimums of the Appleton and the Washington. Yes. Um, And then you have to order, like, the other pieces. So for my pattern, I have the paper pattern, and then I have an envelope, and then I have a booklet inside. So they're all printed at different places. Um, They're apparently assembled by moi and my my friends. Um, Thank you very much, friends. Um, And, yeah, so and we we put them together. It is really difficult because, again, you know, with inventory and forecasting, I just don't have enough data yet to know. So you get it. People have told me you get a huge boost at the beginning and then there's a long tail. That is 100% definitely true, right? So at this point, I don't know the exact number, but I sold you know, well over half of everything I sold on either pattern on the first day, mm-hmm. well over half. Okay. And like, who knows in the long term, like what that percent will end up being, but like, it was a huge chunk. Mm-hmm. Um, then there was when wholesalers started ordering that causes like a big, a big thing as well, because they buy in big chunks. They don't just buy one pattern. Um, but yeah, but it's really tricky. And like, yeah, I was thinking the other day, like, when do I reorder? I don't know. Like, I don't know when I'm going to run out of things or what's going to happen. And I actually, um, I actually ended up ordering, like, slightly more for, like, different reasons. So I don't only have the 2000 I actually have more at this point. But it's very difficult to know. Yeah. Right. Okay. That is so
0: hard to to predict. Um, And you decided to do kits as well. Um, So uh, people can buy the, the print pattern. Can they buy the PDF? Yeah. The PDF version, the print version, and then they can buy the print version plus kit. Yeah. And so sort of what was the thinking behind doing the kits and, um, and how have they done? Do you feel like
1: it's done well? Have they been a good piece of the puzzle? Yeah, so I, I do all those things and I sell the fabric by the yard as well. So the reason that I started is it's really hard to find cute jersey for wrap dresses. This is one of the, like the banes of my sewing life because things that are produced for the home sewing market, like jerseys, they're just not in like modern ready-to-wear prints on the whole, like you know, a lot of them look like children's stuff, you know, they're really made for pajamas. Um, and they're just not, you know, what I would see if I went to a shop, my, my touchstone on everything is like Bowdoin. I love the clothing brand Bowdoin from the UK and I lived in their wrap dresses before I started making my own. And I was always like, I just want Bowdoin. I want to like raid their factory in the middle of the night and steal all their fabric. Um, so I knew that other people would find it hard too. And I was told early on um, by another sewing pattern company person, like, you've got to watch out if you're making things that can't be made in quilting cotton, because a lot of people just don't have access. You know, I live in Boston, and we have a few independent sewing stores, albeit with a really limited uh, array of, like, printed jersey. But, and I can get to New York, but, you know, if you're in, like, the Midwest, and also the UK has a particular shortage of good printed jersey. So I realized that some people would find it hard to make my patterns, so I started looking at like, well, I wonder what would happen if. So I kind of started exploring like what the wholesale fabric market was like. and I quickly, and oh, the other thing I did is I reached out to someone who actually owns an online fabric shop that I buy from all the time. Actually, this is actually a, a funny side note. So talking about not dis- not, being able, not being able to decide whether to approach people about things or not. <laughs> yeah. So I couldn't decide whether it was totally beyond the pale to ask this person how well, she figured out her yeah. and I, and I And so I wrote this email and I put it in my drafts and I'm just like... I, I don't know. Is this just so cheeky? Is this really, really rude? Or is it reasonable? I kind of feel like I know her, but I don't know her. I never met her. Like, oh, I don't know. The next morning I wake up and there's a reply because I accidentally pressed send. All right. I I decided in the morning that I wasn't going to send it because it was too bad. And, um, and she was very pleasant she didn't say, no, I'm not going to tell you. She basically said like, well, I have very long term relationships with people and, um, you know, but I, I do believe in what you're doing. I think it's great. And you know, I'm, I'm willing to help out, but that was as far as she put it. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to push for names or numbers or anything. Like definitely not. My patent drafter had a few names. So I contacted them anyway, a few days later, she emailed me and she's like, by the way, You bought this one um, jersey from me. It's actually this black and white one with little birds on. And I know you really liked it. Like, you you posted photos of it. Um, Here's the supplier's name. I know they just got another roll in. I was like, wow, thank you. That's so kind. So I called up. That was it. Done. And funnily enough, that kit sold out in, like, three days. And so basically that was the beginning of like, okay, now I know a wholesale supplier. And then I started getting to know jobbers who are people who go to factories and buy the ends of designer fabric and send it to you. Yeah. And then that's kind of how we started. So, you know, so far I've put together kits on the Appleton and the Washington. I can't say that I'll necessarily do kits for like every single one. There is an element of like, you have to buy the fabric up front, which isn't nothing. You have to be able to store it. And it is hugely bulky and you have to cut it, and I am extraordinarily bad at cutting yardage.
2: Oh, I can cut too. a piece,
1: but I can't I'm cut the first. worst. <laughs> but um, I'm extremely lucky that I have a few friends um, who are like self employed or they do part time jobs. So they help me do that. So don't worry, people, you're not going to get shuddly cut fabric from me. You're going to get nicely cut fabric from someone who works for me instead. <laughs> Right, and thankfully my kits are really small, so I can <laughs> cut
0: small pieces and I'm fine. It's yeah, trying hard. to cut like three yards, yards of fabric. really, hard. it is really hard. Um, so, you know, again, with locating these suppliers, finding jobbers is really hard to do. I mean, they're like, it's almost like this sort of, it's not shady, but it's like almost shady. Like it's really it hard is. to find, yeah. you can't just, if you Google jobbers like you're not going to find oh here's a listing of 25
1: ones you can contact like right it's funny it's Um, hard kathleen fasanella who runs the um website fashion incubator and Mm -hmm. also wrote a book which is like a guide to uh ready-to-wear manufacturing she writes in her book about how it's almost like a secret code yeah you have to be really careful in like how you phrase things what you tell them and basically they will tell they will actually lie to you they will tell you like oh i don't stop that When they do, because it's all about long-term relationships with them. And also, you know, this is one of the things the fabric shop owner told me is like, the only thing is if I put you in contact with this person, you're not going to be shown the same stuff as me because I get it because I've been buying for them for 20 years. So it's like, what do you do? So for me right now, I only deal with one jobber because I cold called a bunch and like, yeah, they weren't helpful or they sent me samples and they were rubbish. And you can just tell that they're trying to get rid of the poor pollies on the new person, right? Because they don't know you. So but actually what happened was that I only deal with one jobber right now. And when I was visiting my patent drafter, um, the jobber was there. And so I met him, I chatted, like he liked my accent, ha ha ha. Like I, I put in an order and then all of a sudden I get a call saying, oh, I'm going to be in Boston in three months. Do you want me to come in? So now I have an established relationship. Um, also I'm ordering in larger quantities than a lot of people. Jobbers sell a lot to ready to wear designers for boutiques they're only ordering like 20 yards of something. I'm ordering 200 yards. So that helps when you're ordering bigger quantities, but it is a bit of a crapshoot because, you know, you don't know the quality. You know, you have a little sample, but it's kind of hard to tell. Also, you know, apparently secret of the industry, a lot of fabric comes with huge holes in it. And this really gets me. So like you'll buy, you know, 150 yards and you'll be rolling it out and there'll just be massive holes in it. And you don't get a refund for that. It's just apparently thing that happens which is really hard when you're selling in like chunks because like i'm i sell you 2.75 yards of an appleton and if i get to a yard and then there's an enormous hole that that actually hits you a lot um which makes inventory management really hard because occasionally it hasn't happened very often but occasionally you're like oh i still have five yards of this i'll sell two kids and all of a sudden you realize there was a massive hole so you
0: can't so does it worry you with your patterns going out to independent shops which I know that's part of the plan is Mm -hmm. to have them available at independent shops, um, that you're also now essentially a fabric retailer
1: yourself. Does that at all conflict or are you, have you felt like that's fine? Um, I don't think so. I've actually had some fabric shops ask me if they can sell the kids, um, which doesn't work because, you know, I already buy at the wholesale price, so I can't sell to them at the wholesale price. I won't make any money. Um, but uh, it, it's actually turning out to be fine. I mean, ultimately I am also not a permanent stockist of any of this. So I buy a limited batch and unless the, the very unlikely possibility that it immediately sells out, it's wildly successful and more is available. But job is, it's not more available. No, it's not. It's like a set amount. And then it's gone. That's right. Um, there are other people like if you buy from like Telio, who are like a very well-known Canadian wholesale fabric company, you often can get more if you want, but it you know, but no, I haven't. I haven't had any problems right now with that at all. So okay, I think that's important. Fine. And as as far as um,
0: working with distributors, have you decided to sort of allow uh, retail shops to set up a, like an, a wholesale account just directly on your site and order directly from you, or did you you know go with
1: distributors or mm-hmm. how are you handling so that? Right now, I sell directly to wholes- to uh, retailers. So I'm on the Shopify e-commerce platform, which I really like. The um, customer service is insanely good as in 24 hours a day chat and they will go in and fix code on your site for you for free which is kind of astonishing given it's like 30 or 80 dollars a month I think anyway coming from big background um and so you can buy apps so I use an app um oh my goodness this was days and days of research figuring out how to do this but I use an app called locksmith So what it does is you tag every product with consumer or wholesale product. Okay. Then someone makes an account. They have to make an account. A regular consumer doesn't, but a retailer does. They make an account and you tag them with wholesaler. And locksmith allows you to say, if someone logs in and is tagged with wholesalers, do not show them these products and only show them these products. And by doing that, I don't have to do like invoicing, purchase orders, do things on Excel sheets, which actually I was planning on doing. And locksmith is $9 a month. So for $9 a month, you can have a wholesale system. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do right now. Obviously, the downside is that for people outside the U.S., there's shipping and there's customs. Now, I, I did work out, you know, one sort of nice thing, which is that up to about 10 products, you can flip, you can ship in flat rate envelopes mm-hmm. this was shipping honestly is the biggest pain in the head really of is. everything but you can you can ship 10 products 10 patterns for 25 dollars anywhere in the world that's not unreasonable that's kind of okay for retailers as soon as you get one more than that though mm-hmm. it goes into variable pricing mm-hmm. and then they may or may not get um charged with customs when it arrives right. now in some cases there is zero customs and sometimes there's more there's no way of predicting it. No. You don't know. And every country has a different minimum, so there's no way to know. But even within one country, I had some places that didn't get charged at all and some got more. So you can't build it into the cost, really, because you don't know what it's going to be. So, you know, the obvious next step is that a lot of independent patent companies based in the U.S. end up going to distributors. So it is something I'm looking at right now. It's definitely something I hear from retailers, like, we'd rather you be a distributor. The problem is... (laughs) That wholesale is 50% of retail, right? So what? So you, you sell to a shop for half of what you, they're selling to the public. When you go to a distributor, from what I understand, they take then another 30% yes. off the wholesale price. Yep. So all of a sudden, your profit, compared to selling it directly... Yeah, has you just, get like $2 instead of $12 maybe, or whatever it is. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. And yes. like for me right now, like I don't have huge quantities, so I can't negotiate that much on my own costs. Like it's down to like, is it worth selling... To more shops, if you maybe only make a dollar, and I don't know, maybe it is. I'm being told by a lot of people that it is, and also maybe it's a long term play, right? Like you do it now, and then you work on getting your costs down. So it probably does make sense, um, but it's a tricky one, and it's it's a hard decision to make. That's a classic one where people will tell you, "Oh yeah, I go to a distributor and I like it," but no one's going to give you their financial information, right? So you can't like really figure out precisely what volume is required to make it worth it. Right, 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 right. It's It's still a guess. Um,
0: Okay, so what has been kind of the hardest thing and what's been the most surprising or or unexpected thing now that you
1: are on the other side of (laughs) launch? Well, it's funny because um, coming from this family where running your own business was seen as, like, the best thing you can possibly do. I remember my dad is not one to give advice, but one piece of advice he gave me as a teenager was, like, be your own boss as soon as you can. So I kind of idealized working for myself for a long time. Um, I, I've been surprised by the fact that it's not necessarily um, making business decisions that's hard. Because, you know, I've been working for nearly 20 years on launching products. So I have quite a lot of experience doing that. And I'm also fairly pragmatic. You know, I have an I messed it up fund in my brain. It doesn't actually exist. And I have allocated a certain amount of money to me messing up which believe me, it's getting used up. (laughs) But to like give myself a break and be like, you're going to make mistakes. It's okay. Yeah. So the actual, just like business operation side of it has actually been maybe in some ways easier than I expected because I hadn't fully appreciated the degree to which I'd done this stuff already. Much, much harder is um, working on my own. So hard in a way I hadn't anticipated. Um, I've always thought of myself as not much of a team player, honestly, and like I'm best just doing things on my own. So I kind of assumed I would find that easy. But what i had taken for granted is I always worked in an office, surrounded by people. I'd always have at least a handful of friends in the office. I often had a team. Now, they might have reported to me, so I wasn't working with them. Like, they were working more for me. But it's still people. And it's people to talk about things with. And, you know, I think we were just talking about this on social media. the Like, I really struggle. Like, with the di- distrib- distributors, right? right. I want to, like, chat to someone every day about what to do. And, right. I think a lot when I talk, um, it's like the way I process, I'm not good at just sitting quietly and processing in my brain. I, I process by talking, which my friends will tell you. (laughs) Um, and I miss that. And I also miss having anyone as invested as I am in the success, because again, my friends will absolutely listen to me for half an hour, maybe even an hour, but then that's it. I do not have someone I can turn around to every 10 minutes and be like, do you think we should do this right like do you think we should sell fabric by the yard do you think i should get an inventory app now or like is the when's the excel gonna get too much and like should i accelerate this one product but accept that the cost of goods is gonna go up or not like i'm on my own for doing all of that yeah so yeah i hadn't anticipated how difficult that would be um i am very much hoping i have a few friends who work for me on a contract basis hours here and there. And I'm really hoping that within the next few months, like I can justify having one of them at least working part-time with me. But that's, that's the thing that's actually surprised me the most. Like I had not anticipated that I'd find that the hardest bit. Yeah, it is really hard.
0: Um, and you know, my husband can only take so much (laughs) asking him questions. And I also have to do so much explaining, you know, like there's just a lot of backstory to understanding, you know, and if you don't run a business on the internet, there's just a lot of internet stuff yeah. that you have to understand. And, um, so it's one thing that he doesn't sew and that's fine, but that just
1: even understanding like the way that this works, is really, so that's much. what for me is so valuable. Like I think of like Heather particularly is like, she's like my virtual colleague because we literally chat every day and these are precisely the things that we chat about. Now, in many cases, neither of us has done it. So it's not like one is necessarily teaching the other like we're both figuring out what to do about distributors because she just came out with print pants too and so that is fantastic i wish we lived in physically the same place we're actually only about five hours apart but still we're not um, but i agree like i also you know have been trying to like connect with other entrepreneurs but what i do is just a thousand times different than having an app it's like nothing to do with having yes. an app like only in the most broad sense are our experiences the same you know it's funny I go to these events and like sometimes I tell people like you know I sell a physical product and like you can just see them shut up they're just like oh how how 2005 that right. you sell a physical thing like I've no interest if you're not going to scale and like get billion dollars from Be, the PC. Either way, exactly. yeah. and I mean for me personally like I'm single and I live on my own so you know I spend a lot of time on my own doing these things right um but that's why I'm trying to like you know make an effort to like reach out and connect with people as much as I can. Yeah, in person. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, all right. So um, tell us just where people can. We're going to get to our recommendation list in a second. But tell us where people can go if they want to sort of check out the patterns and see um, you know see the kits themselves and see what they look like
1: and um, see you on the cover and all of that. Good <laughs> stuff. I'm only on one cover. So people <laughs> get too worried. I won't be on everyone. Um, so my Shopify shop is at shop.cashmorett.com. But the easier way is just to go to cashmarette.com and click on the shop link and you'll immediately be taken over there. Um, so that's where I kind of live during the day. Um, I'm also really present on the Curvy Sewing Collective, which curvysewingcollective.com. Um, Instagram is like my, my big thing, um, especially after the whole cake with Cashmere thing happened this summer, like my Instagram blew up. So I'm over there a lot, um, and I'm at Cashmere easily. I'm basically Cashmere and all social media. So on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and so on. Um, I think Instagram is kind of where I hang out the most. So. And just
0: tell people really briefly, uh, what happened with cake with Cash and Red, because I, I, some people, I think, I don't know how could have missed
1: it. <laughs> so they should know what that is. Um, so really briefly, um, a random dude wrote a comment on a post I put on Instagram of a sketch of a swimsuit, um, basically saying that I looked fat and I should eat less cake. So, um, the next day I'd made a dress and I put a nice picture of myself in the dress and I'm talked about it and then I put a PS and it was just sarcastic and it basically just like, oh, you know, Mr. Troll, like, thank you for pointing out I should eat less cake. You can see how unhappy I am. And I was kind of twirling in this, like, fabulous dress, so obviously being sarcastic. Um, And then five minutes later or 10 minutes later or something, actually, my friend Mary Danielson Perry of the blog Idle Fancy posted a picture of herself eating cake, reading my blog, saying, oh, great idea, like, let's all eat cake with cash right? And I put the hashtag on on my blog. So a few hours later, like a few hundred people had done it. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. I mean, it's so heartwarming and amazing to see people like standing up and, and in a really positive way, not in like an angry way or like down with the haters, just in a like, let's all eat cake, which is an awesome thing to do. Um, and then it took another leap, which was really crazy, which is that it got picked up by the Guardian newspaper in the UK, which is like one of the biggest ones in the UK. Um, and then it went viral around the world. Um, so in the end, I did like dozens of media interviews and I was in hundreds of newspapers and magazines and like hundreds of people on Instagram at this point. And it would hit different countries. It was quite funny. I'd wake up and like Brazil was eating cake or Japan was eating cake or Taiwan. Anyway, so that was kind of amazing. It was before I launched the business. I know that there are were, there, there were conspiracy theorists. Of course there are. I, think that I? <laughs> I did it on purpose, which I have to say makes me laugh so much because the lack of understanding of social media and what makes things go viral. is Guys, that you could have done it on purpose. I would be, I would be living on a yacht right. like, if I knew how to do that. Right. Like, I have been in charge of social media for, like, mainstream brands. Like, that is not something you can, like, artificially manufacture. It was just the right time and the right image and the right hashtag and, like, the right whimsy or whatever. Anyway, so despite what the critics think that was totally a coincidence Um, but the thing that's been amazing for me for the business is one my Instagram like exploded so I have a lot more followers now most of whom stuck around which surprised me actually because I thought it would collapse again but it didn't um and second of all, like, you know, help my search engine optimization <laughs> because all of a sudden a lot of like very large, um, media outlets were pointing towards cashmere you know, whether it's actually impacted my business. Like I have no idea, but you know, it was a fun thing. That yeah. Happened. Yeah. Okay. So just to, <laughs> to review that. So
0: let's get to our list. Um, I want to recommend a few, just two things and you have two things to recommend as well. Um, so I'm, I'm going to start and then I'm going to, um, turn to you. So I just wanted to recommend briefly, uh, Subscription to Fast Company, the actual magazine. I know it's bizarre because I read Fast Company online and I have for a long time. I actually don't know that I even realized they had a magazine, like a print magazine. <laughs> like I started knowing what Fast Company was by reading them online, usually through links from Twitter. Um, and then a friend of mine recommended that I get a subscription to the actual magazine, which I did. And I've had it for maybe six months now. And it is so great. I love Fast Company, love Fast Company um, the magazine. I read it on the airplane whenever I'm traveling. It's nice to have that print magazine. I read it before I go to bed where I have no screens upstairs in our bedroom. So it's nice to have that print magazine there. And um, if you're interested in the Internet, like in the way the Internet affects Culture and life and business and all aspects of like who we are and who we're going to become then I think the writing is great and it's awesome I just really love it so I recommend it <laughs> I stopped my subscription to Martha Stewart Living and started my subscription to Fast Company so maybe that says something about magazine me but...
1: subscriptions are also incredibly inexpensive in a way I yeah. didn't realize it's like you can get a magazine for like 20 cents if you subscribe yeah like, why not totally great and it comes and I'm
0: psyched and I, yeah it's great it's the only one I subscribe to now and I really like it so I wanted to recommend that and you wanted to recommend something that's dear to my heart which <laughs> Craft
1: Industry Alliance yeah so I'm gonna sound like a tall uh, sycophant here but I, I genuinely genuinely love craft industry alliance so you know I have been fortunate that I knew people who who did the kind of business I did before I started but you know first of all they only have a certain amount of experience and second of all like there's only so many times you can go hi I just wanted to ask you but um you know since Abby and Kristen set up craft industry alliance I've been um active in the forum so that for me is the big one I really enjoy the articles they're great as well although I feel like they're quite well not similar They're an extension of what you've done, Abby, on while she naps, and like I enjoy the extension, and they're on very interesting topics for me. Like personally, it's like I feel like I'm precisely the target market for them, so I love them. But the forums are where it gets crazy helpful because all kinds of people are in here, people who I would never have met before ever and don't have anything to do with. So just the other day, I prompted a question, and I was like, "Guys, self publishing versus having a traditional publisher. Like, how does that work? What do you think?" and now it's turned into this huge conversation in which so many people are sharing their personal experience things i would never would have even thought of very specific recommendations people started popping up offering services to me like if you're interested in this call me on this number and all of a sudden it's like it's like you're in the secret the secret cool kids group. Right. And like you have access to all these people and a very wide variety of people seem to be posting. And a lot of people with very established successful businesses. So it's not like one of these networking events where no one knows what they're doing and everyone's looking for help. It's like, there's a lot of people who can truly help you on there. Um, and they're very open to a newbie. Like I have started multiple threads now where I just throw something out and I'm like distributors guys, tell me about it. Here is my situation. And here's what I think. Very collaborative. Um, I don't feel. I don't worry. It, it's also closed. It's like members only. So right. I don't have a sense of like, oh, like you know, the, the like you know, um, the 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 gallery are gonna like find it and start like bitching about it online. Um, so it's 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 sort of a safe space in which there's really really helpful people. So. Highly recommend it. And I, su- I make sure that I subscribe on my email. So like this morning I just woke up and like two people who work for publishers are like, giving me extremely long and detailed, thoughtful stuff, not just selling this side, but thoughtful right. like comments on it. And like, you know, who knows whether I'm even going to do any of this, but I can tell you that that's an extreme help. Totally. I'm so
0: glad to hear that. And just to be clear, like Craft Industry Alliance is a trade organization founded by me and Kristen Link, who, whose site is So SoMamaSo. Um, and it's been up for maybe three months now. Um, and, uh, and it's, you know, I'm so glad to hear that it's helpful to you. And there are a lot of publishers who are in there, which is great. And a lot of other big companies are members. So Spoonflower is a member and, you know, all these, all these publishing houses are members. So, and it's, it's great because they are, they're the movers and the shakers. And so you're in there and you're with them. Um, and it, in a way that maybe you're not going to connect with them in a Facebook group, for example, or something like that. Totally. It's very niche. Abby Um, did not pay me (laughs) full (laughs) time. But I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate (laughs) the recommendation. So, okay. And um, I wanted to recommend What's Tech, which is a great podcast that I've been listening to. Um, It's made by The Verge, which is another online site. And um, basically each episode, they kind of focus on one aspect of technology and just explain it. They have an expert on, so they'll Mm -hmm. explain like what's Minecraft what's uber like you, what's an online meme they kind of like just break it down like you've heard all these things but like what is it what are online ads like what is it really mm-hmm. it's like 25 minutes it's it's not talked about in a way that's so esoteric and technical that you can't access it it's very down to earth and um you come away from being, being like oh wow. Well, I under, like, what's Twitter? Like, what is Twitter? Like, it, they just explain yeah. it from the, from the top all the way down. Um, and so I've really enjoyed it, and I've been binge listening. I think I've listened to, like, nine episodes in the last week. So mm-hmm. it's great. I recommend What's Tech. Um, and you wanted to recommend one last thing, which is haptic lab quilts.
1: Yeah, so, you know, often I really, really want to sew in an evening, but increasingly I don't. Because I've been doing it all day. Um, and I do find that like sewing for me on a machine is a very engrossing, um, experience. So I can listen to a podcast, but I can't do very much else. And sometimes I just don't have the energy and I don't knit yet, although my brother is getting me some knitting things for Christmas. So interesting seeing what I get. Um, so I don't knit, which is a lot of what so many of my friends knit. Um, so I was kind of missing something that I could do in a more like mindless way while let's face it, watching the television so i wanted a crafty thing that was more relaxing than sewing which is a bit more active so a more passive thing and um goodness it was a few years ago now and i don't even know where i saw it but on a sewing blog i saw this company called haptic labs and what they do is they make quilting templates but it's not traditional quilting you make a quilt but you are hand quilting the lines and there's no piecework or patchwork so basically what it is is they sell you a piece of interfacing right? It's a piece of interfacing that's been printed. And they started off by doing city maps. So you can quilt, hand quilt, a map of Boston. And I was like, this is awesome. And they're small because you wouldn't, you know, it'd be hard to do a big one. So they're like, how big is this? Three feet by two feet. So I saw it online somewhere, quilt a Boston city map. and I'm like, amazing. So I bought it. And basically what you do is you make a sandwich of fabric batting fabric. You put the interfacing on the top and you pin it or safety pin it. And then you hand sew all the streets and the river. And it's so... meditative. And it's not embroidery. It's actually just with sewing thread. It's sewing... Th- uh, yeah. Actually, is it? I think you can use either. You can do either. So, so the thing is, is that it's very creative because you can do whatever you want. So I've seen examples from them where they've done white on white. So it's like a true quilt. And you can't really see what it is. And then you go, oh, my goodness, it's New York. Or it's London or Paris or something. Or you can do it using embroidery thread And it's It's very, very obvious and it's like an illustrated thing. Mm -hmm. And of course the fun thing, if you do a map is you can like put your house in, or I know someone contacted me the other day asking me advice on it and they're doing one for their daughter getting married and it's going to be like landmarks around the city of like their life. So it's super cute. So I did that one a few years ago. Um, I am doing a constellation one right now a North Northern hemisphere constellation actually as a baby gift um and haptic lab um saw me on instagram and actually sent me this is going to be interesting a full bed quilt size version of the constellation one to do who knows how long that's going to take their usual ones i think it's somewhere between 40 and 80 hours of work but the whole point is you don't sit down with a deadline to do it that would that would drive you nuts instead you just sit in front of your television and you spread this quilt on your lap and you just sit there and it's also very good like it as a garment sewer, you don't do much hand sewing. And then when you do have to do it, you're often terrible at yeah, it. Yeah, it's great. Like, for oh my goodness, I make your, your, your softies yeah. and I love them, but yeah. mine looks so bad <laughs> compared to yours because my hand skills are not great. hand skills, yeah. Um, the more um, you do it. And the quilting is great, yes. yeah. Like, I looked, I, I, I I looked at the quilt I was making the other day, um, and you could see visibly the difference between when I started and now. Yeah. And then just to complete the thought, what, what you do is you sew through all the layers and the interfacing up and down, which you just have to have a sharp needle and you're fine. And then you rip the interfacing off at the end. And it's this huge reveal. It's actually incredibly satisfying because you think it looks cool anyway. But once you take the paper away and there's no markings because you didn't draw on the fabric, you just see your pure stitches. It looks beautiful, and then you bind it, and then yeah, like... it's kind of making me feel like you could actually print on interfacing
0: your own design and do the same thing. You absolutely could, yeah. I mean, Haptic to labs awesome, but that's a neat idea too. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, think yeah. Really printable
0: interfacing is that a thing? That should be a thing.
1: I don't see why not. It really yeah. is just normal interfacing. Yeah. It's not a special thing. You should be able to run that through your printer somehow. I think Interesting. So. I think you just invented something new. I me. know. <laughs> I been, immediately. Let's get on that.
0: It's a new business. Um, well, Jenny, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Wall Street Apps podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you very much for having me. It was yeah, fun. it was great. So, if you've been listening to the Wall Street Apps podcast. Visit my blog, WalshyNaps.com, where you can sign up for my weekly email newsletter. This Walshy Naps podcast was brought to you by Spoonflower. Design, print, and sell your own designs on fabric, wallpaper, and gift wrap at Spoonflower.com or shop the Spoonflower Marketplace for millions of designs by indie designers. Join the Spoonflower community of DIY-minded individuals from around the world who appreciate quality custom design. While she naps, podcast listeners can get 15% off your next Spoonflower order with the code ABBY15, A-B-B-Y-1-5. Visit spoonflowercom slash Abby for more details. And if you enjoyed the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.